welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. In the podcast this week, I'm speaking to Christy Lefteri. Christy's first book, A Watermelon, a Fish and a Bible, was published in 2010. Her second novel, The Beekeeper of Aleppo, came out in 2019 and won the 2020 Aspen Words Literary Prize. Having sold over a million copies worldwide, it is still high on the bestseller list two years after publication. Christy's latest book, Songbirds, is out in July this year. Christy, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Hi, Sarah. Hi. It's so lovely to have you on the podcast. As I was saying before we hit record, your book, Beekeeper of Aleppo, I mean, it goes without saying, because I think I'm in the same boat as everyone else has read it. It's just, it's, I just think it's a spectacular book. And I was so excited to get my hands on the proof of your new book. So. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks for coming on today. As I do with all of my guests, I'd like to start off, if you don't mind, by going back to your childhood. Sure. You grew up in London, mm-hmm. the child of Cypriot refugees. What do you remember about your childhood? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know where to start. Do you know what? For some weird reason, the first thing that's popped into my head is my brother once, you know, like they used to do those big tubs of Ariel, you know, the laundry detergent. Yeah. And it was a huge, huge kind of tub of it. And he spilt it all over the floor. (laughs) And then he went, Mum, look what Christy's done. I don't know why, but when you said, what do you remember? That was the first thing that popped into my head. That says so much. That says so much. <laughs> I'm going to tell my brother like that later when I speak to him. I'll be like, yeah, someone asked me, what do I remember about my childhood? And I'll everything. <laughs> and the problem with that memory was that my mum just believed him. So you got into trouble? I got into trouble. She believed him. And I kind of, I mean, it is sort of linked to my writing in some way, because I I always felt growing up that I was more believed or more listened to when I was writing, rather than when I was trying to explain something. So When you were telling the truth. <laughs> Are you, is your brother older or younger than you? No, younger than me. And he's a barrister. <laughs> that explains a lot, doesn't it? I, I don't know. I've like dug this hole for myself now yeah so what I remember is that my brother used to do things and blame me for them and then I used to get to... no it's really not as bad as that I, I, <laughs> I no I, I remember my childhood quite nicely you know like it was normal in many ways I grew up in North London I was born in Islington at first my parents because they were refugees they lived in a flat in Islington with my grandmother and my auntie and my uncle. So there were quite a lot of us in the flat. Then they moved to Edmonton, which is North London again. And then eventually we moved to Southgate, which is where I live now still. I mean, I moved out, came back. Everyone else is gone now and I'm still here. And, you know, my parents were refugees. So, you know, there was a lot in my childhood that I remember about that difference in the generations. You know, my parents had come from, well, my mum had come from a really small village 
My dad was from a town called Varosi. So they came with all their customs and ideals and ways of living. And suddenly they were in London. Mm -hmm. And so naturally, my brother and I, we were kind of slightly caught between two worlds, which I think is quite common feeling. And so, yeah, I mean, it was a nice childhood. I also have another brother who actually is the youngest, but he lives in Cyprus. He moved to Cyprus when he was five years old because my mum's sister, uh, five days old, sorry, my mum's sister couldn't have any children. So my mum and dad had a child for my mum's sister and her husband. So he, Oh, wow. Yeah, so he's always lived in Cyprus. So in England, it's been me and Kiri. And Mario has always been in Cyprus. But, I mean, if you looked at him, you could tell immediately that he's our brother. And I feel like he's my brother when I'm around him. I don't feel like he's a cousin or anything like that. That's pretty unusual. That's a, yeah. That's, I've never heard of that before. Yeah, neither have I, apart from this, <laughs> apart from my mum doing it. But, yeah, I know I've sort of chaotically thrown a few things about my childhood at you, but those were the main things that came to me. Did you, I mean, you say your parents were refugees. Were you aware of that as a child? Did you understand that? Or was it just the way things were? No, I mean, not really. I just, I knew that there was a war and that they'd come from another country because they couldn't stay there. I knew that. I didn't quite understand more than that. Mm -hmm. I knew later, many years later, that some of, especially my dad, because he was a commanding officer of that war. And I think he was quite traumatized. So I believe that Many of his reactions were as a result of the trauma that he suffered during the war. I mean, my mum was a refugee, but obviously she didn't fight. And so it was much different for my dad, who would have seen people dying and that kind of thing. And then it's interesting because after I published Beekeeper, I was writing an article about transgenerational trauma for The Observer. And it was basically an article about how when you don't talk about a trauma, it's more likely to be passed on to the next generation because it gets passed on in actions that sort of have no, that seem to have no grounding or explanation. So it, it, the trauma is sort of passed on from one generation to another. Whereas, oh, goodness. Yeah, so I was writing an article about this. It's a really interesting subject if anyone's interested in exploring it further, if you type into Google transgenerational trauma. It's really, really, really fascinating. And also because I did a psychoanalytic training for a number of years, I've always really been interested in these kind of things. So I was writing the article about it, and then I happened to go for a walk in the middle of writing that article, and my dad happened to phone while I was going on that walk. Mm-hmm. And he said, what are you doing? And I told him that I was writing an article about transgenerational trauma. And then he said, what is that? And I told him. And then he basically said, well, you know, I never spoke about the war because I wanted to protect you. And I I didn't say anything because I didn't want to upset him. Mm -hmm. And then he just opened up for the first time. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was a really weird experience. And all because I was writing this article. And he just basically told me that even now, 40 years later, or more than 40 years, he thinks about the war on a weekly basis. So imagine back then. And then he told me all these memories about, because he was the officer, people that he thought he was trying to save, but he didn't manage to save and they ended up dying. And then other people and then friends of his. And then, you know, so all this stuff sort of just came out all at once. And I even remember where I was. I was standing outside of Clark's shoe shop. Um, and I just kind of froze there listening to these memories. So no, but no, he never spoke about it when I was younger, but it was there. It was definitely there. It was like a shadow. Yeah, it's really interesting because it 
you said that happened when you wrote an article after you'd written, written The Beekeeper of Aleppo. Yeah. Because I was going to ask you about Beekeeper and whether there was any influence from your parents' experience or anything that you had direct contact with about that generated the book. But it's interesting because you've said that your dad actually told you about his experiences after you've written the book. So yeah. where did the inspiration for Beekeeper Aleppo come from? It was actually from, initially, it was because my parents were refugees. Mm-hmm. Now, even though my dad didn't talk about the war, it was always there. It was just there. You know, mm-hmm. it was in the background. I even had these sort of like, I don't know, it's not nightmare. I don't know what it was. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and have this phobia that a bomb was falling. And I'd run to the window and open these like, I had these pink velvet curtains, you know, the kind of curtains everyone had in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I'd open them up and think that there was a bomb, but there was nothing there. It was just a normal sky. I don't know. And then years later, my uncle told me, my dad had traveled through Europe and like he was eating fruit off the trees in France to survive and then eventually made it to the UK. And then he lived with his brother in a bedsit on Vauxhall Bridge Road. And apparently, according to my uncle, my dad used to wake up in the middle of the night and shout at the top of his voice, get your heads down. And the thing is, my uncle would then tell him the next morning that he had done that and he wouldn't remember. So things started fitting into place and then I went and had therapy and everything and I could Mm -hmm. kind of understand where some of my fears had come from it was sort of there it was in the background but then other members of my family were more likely to talk about the war like my grandparents were more likely to talk about it than my parents for example so when it came to like the reason I chose to wrote Beaky well no the reason I chose to go and volunteer was because after my mum died My dad moved to Cyprus. I went to visit him one year. Well, I go often, but this particular year, it was 2016 and it was spring. And he lives on the far east side of Cyprus. And I just remember sitting on the shore and it's really pretty there. And I was looking out across the water. It was really calm. There weren't any tourists because it was Easter. And the water was sparkling. And I just remember thinking, if I got on a little boat and traveled for about an hour, I'd reach Syria. And I couldn't help but you know, envision these bombs falling and, I don't know, gunshots going off and children being scared. And I sat there for ages thinking about it. And then I, you know, I was like, oh, my God, you know, I mean, thank God I'm here and not there. And then I felt guilty for thinking that, you know, all the normal things that go through our minds sometimes. Mm -hmm. But then I started wondering, like, when it was the war in Cyprus, were people in Syria standing at the beach there, were looking over, thinking, what are people in Cyprus going through? And I just, I don't know, that thought in itself just pushed me to want to go and volunteer. I mean, I wanted to go, obviously, I couldn't go to Syria. Mm -hmm. So I decided, well, I thought, well, I want to go and work in a camp or a center or something and just do something. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up in a women and children's center. So it was that thought that was linked to my parents and my family. So not just my parents, but my entire family that kind of led me to want to volunteer in the first place which then overwhelmed me with emotion and then made me want to start writing. So that's how one led to the other. Goodness. It's quite a string of events, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We'll come back to your experience of volunteering in a minute, if you don't mind. But the thing that I absolutely loved about The Beekeeper, which I guess you've touched on there, is I kind of class in a group of books like The Book Thief or The Kite Runner, which are books where you're reading about something that, God forbid, you hope that you as an individual person mm. you won't ever experience, yeah. but you're learning about something. So I learned so much by reading your book. 
you know, you hear about refugees and you see them and you know they're around and you know you see the, the big refugee crisis when you see lots of people walking down the roads, God forbid. Then you also know that in a city like London or, you know, any of the major cities or in fact anywhere in the UK, there are refugees everywhere. Yeah. And it's just a known thing. But even though I view myself as very open-minded, I'd never really sat and thought about, goodness, what must it be like to come into a country yeah. and be trying to get that refugee status and, and to actually really push through the system? Yeah. I think it's just such a brilliant book because it makes you think about that without, you know, it's not lecturing you, it's not yeah. throwing facts at you, it's really just woven really well into the fiction. So I think it's brilliant. Thanks. Yeah. So your time on the camp, how long were you there for? Well, I was at the centre, so it was a women and children centre, so the women and children would come from the camp, and the centre was a safe place for them. So I was there, I went, I can't remember exactly when I went, I think it was like May that I went, because I've got these really long holidays from the university, Mm -hmm. and I went in May and kind of, and then I start teaching again, either the end of September or beginning of October, and I think that year was like the first of October that was starting So I was there from like May until the end of September. And then I went back the following year, or it might have been June. But anyway, it was a good amount of time for me to kind of get really like attached to the people I'd met. And I kind of got lost in it a bit. And then when I came back, I couldn't stop thinking about everything. Mm -hmm. I just felt like it. I came back and I was still in Athens in a way. I just couldn't forget about it. Because at the centre, there was a play area, there was an area for new mothers that had just given birth, and sometimes the babies were born on the journey, or they were born in Athens, and then there was an area for tea and biscuits, and this is where a lot of the women made friendships, and there were showers, because in the camps, there weren't showers, so they could come here and have a nice warm shower, Mm -hmm. and so I was just rotating different duties, different days, or different duties, different parts of the day. And then I went back the following year. But when I went back, it had gone from being a drop-in centre to becoming an activity centre, which was amazing to see because the reasoning behind that was that they wanted to help people to start believing that they could have the strength to live again, you know, to have skills to live, to do something with themselves and to not Mm. get stuck where they were. And so they were learning Greek, English, German, and all sorts of other classes and therapy and all sorts of things. So that was absolutely amazing. So when I went back the following year, I was actually teaching English to the women. So yeah, that must be really lovely to be able to see that progression. Yeah, definitely. It was amazing. So you mentioned that you were taking a break from teaching. We've we've kind of jumped from your childhood right the way to the present day, really. So you teach creative writing at Brunel University, Uh which is the same university where you actually went to university. You did your bachelor's, master's and PhD there. Exactly. Your first book was published in 2010. Was it during your studies that you decided you wanted to write? Did it happen quite naturally or was it kind of a conscious decision to say, do you know what, there's something I want to do? Well, if we go back to my childhood, when I was about nine years old, I just knew always, I always, always knew that I wanted to write. So when I was about nine years old, I had this teacher and he'd ask me to write stories every week and I'd write these stories and then I'd illustrate them and everything. And then I think I was about nine when he said this. And he said, one day you're going to be a writer, you're going to be an author and you're going to do a PhD. And somehow I did the two things that he said I would do. I don't know if it's because he said I was going to do it that I did it or that he just saw something in my love for it and realized that I had this passion that I don't know but either way it was always there with me so I always knew I wanted to write a novel or novels I guess that when I did so I did a degree in English lit and even then I was like 
I was just kind of itching to write. And then I did an MA in creative writing. And then, you know, again, I was like, should I start a novel? And then so I started A Watermelon Fish in a Bible. I did. I wrote it for my PhD oh, okay. with a thesis. So the thesis was like psychological and post-colonial themes in Cypriot literature of liberation, which was part of my research study that was linked to the book that I wrote, which was about the war in Cyprus in 1974. Mm-hmm. So you can see like how it was always there, but then doing the MA and the PhD really kind of solidified it for me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was exactly what I was going to use. Yeah. And so these days now you're on the other side, you're teaching the creative writing. Yeah. How was the response from your colleagues and from your students when The Beekeeper came out? Yeah, it was really good. It was really, really cool. Just, I, I don't know, people were really excited. I guess it's an environment where everyone's kind of writing and things are getting published. And so I find it a really supportive environment. And so like I work with, for, for example, one of my colleagues, Bernadine Evaristo, and then, you know, mine and her book came out at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then she won the booker and and I was really excited for her. And then my mind won the Aspen. I think everyone, you know, we kind of support each other and say things on, you know, social media and blah, 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 and all of that stuff. So I think it's a it's a nice environment and we get excited and happy for one another. So it's a, it's good like that. Yeah, I think the students are in a pretty good position with you guys as lecturers. I mean, they're, they're kind of spot for choice, aren't they? Yeah, and also it's Benjamin Zafaniya, who's absolutely amazing. He's a great, great lecturer as well. Um, he's such a wonderful speaker as well. Oh, my God, he's brilliant. He's mm. so brilliant. And he gave me a lovely blurb for my book for Beekeeper before it came out. And also, who else? Daljit Nagra, who actually, before he started teaching at Brunel, was one of my favourite poets. Gosh, I mean, I love his poetry. So when he started teaching at Brunel, I was a bit awestruck. I was like... I was going to say, he's totally starstruck. (laughs) Yeah, completely starstruck. I was like, oh my God, there's Darjit. Darjit Nagra, kind of thing. So yeah, it's interesting. And I've learned a lot from working there. It's a nice environment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this last year, let's talk about this last year. I mean, we're recording this in April 2021, um, which obviously is 15 months into this coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. As the public know about it, obviously it was out around for slightly longer than that. Had major, major impact on everyone's life. How have you been through this? How has it impacted you? Well, last year I was meant to be traveling a lot. Mm-hmm. So on the, the beginning of March, I was meant to be going to South Africa, for example. I was then going to go to New York. I was then supposed to go to Aspen for the prize. And obviously, I couldn't go anywhere, mm-hmm. which was in some way, it was sad because I would have loved to have gone to Aspen and I would have loved to have gone to South Africa and to New York. But in another way, it was also nice to kind of have that stillness and that quiet and to just kind of have that space to think and to write. Mm-hmm. So I, it was difficult to do the research for Songbirds, but I managed to do some of it before we went into lockdown. And then a lot of it I did using Zoom, basically, or phone calls or whatever way I could think of. So I kind of used that time to research songbirds and to write it. Yeah, it's that's quite a sign of the times, isn't it, that you're reverting to technology to be able to do things that you'd normally be doing in person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you find that you, you talked about stillness there, did you find that you took time to read more than you would have done normally? Or oh, yeah. 
yeah, yeah. definitely, definitely. Usually I'm trying to sort of start reading a book and then I, there's something else I have to do and then I forget. There, there were times where I was traveling so much that I'd, I'd start a book and then forget that I'd started it. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I managed that and then I'd be like, a few months later I'd see that book and go, oh my God, I actually did start that. And it wasn't because I wasn't enjoying it or anything. It's just I get completely distracted with something else. So yeah, it was for me, knowing me and like my personality, I really appreciate having quiet and a bit of almost like enough time to be bored. Mm-hmm. And once I realize that I don't have to be everywhere, then I can start going, okay, I'm just going to read and then I'm going to write. And actually, sometimes I do need that. However, I wish that it would have been under different circumstances and we we didn't all go into lockdown because of this horrible COVID. And it's been a difficult time. There have been family members that died and things like that. So Sorry to hear that. Yeah, I mean, so so many people have been through so much this year. Yeah, I think, like you say, though, it, it's been awful. And we're never going to look back on this time as being good or happy but I do think there's a certain element of a lot of people have rediscovered some of the more simple things in life Mm -hmm. reading a book going for a walk having a conversation all of those kind of things yeah and I actually managed to meet somebody in lockdown because I was single before lockdown and I never no you didn't yeah and I never thought you know but you know what I don't know I was thinking about it and I thought god you know I was trying to meet someone and I wasn't and then when we went into lockdown, I did. And how did I manage that? And I genuinely think it's because life slowed down. Mm-hmm. And actually, I know a few other people that, that kind of went through a similar thing. So I just think life slowed down and gave us a chance to kind of, as cliched as it sounds, maybe reconnect with ourselves and with other people. Mm. Wow, that's a good news story. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> what was the last book you read? The last book I read was Snowflake by Louise Nealon. How did you find that? Beautiful and unusual, quirky, funny. I loved it. I loved it. She's such a unique voice. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't know what, to, it's such an unusual book. It's like, maybe I've ever read anything like it before. The chapters are really short and there's such beautiful imagery, but it's like, it's so funny. And she just captures the, I, I'm trying to not say too much. <laughs> I don't know. The book's not out yet, so it's really, you know, because I I was sent it so I could write a blurb, and I started reading it, and I just couldn't put it down. But she captures so much about the culture, the way of life. It's quirky. And the thing I love the most about it is that she deals with these really, really, really difficult themes about mental health and depression. It's sort of like a coming-of-age story. Mm -hmm. And at the same time... It's so funny. And I don't know, I'm in awe of people that can do that, that can write about really serious matters and in such a sensitive and beautiful way and also somehow make it funny, but in a way that doesn't take away from the seriousness of it. I'm just in awe of how she managed to do that. So I I absolutely love that book. She's getting a lot of, there's there's a lot of good reviews already coming through for it. Bear in mind, you know, it's not, like you say, it's not been published yet. It's being published in the middle of May. So I think it's going to be very interesting when it's finally available for people to be able to get their hands on. I honestly think it's going to do amazingly well because it's something really special. I'm not surprised at all that it's getting amazing reviews already. That's good. That's another good recommendation. Are you someone that always has one book on the go at a time or do you have multiple books you dip in and out? I might have multiple non-fiction books, (laughs) but I usually have only one fiction book at once. So right now I'm reading The Overstory. 
Oh, brilliant. And how are you finding that? Really, 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 really long, but I love it. (laughs) (laughs) You ever get that feeling where you've got like a bowl of spaghetti and it's just never going to end? And you're like, hold on, but I've been eating for ages and it's just not ending. (laughs) I get that feeling when I'm reading this book. But I love it. Oh, my God. It just It's so thought-provoking. Do you know, I think, it, yes, it is long, but I keep having to stop at the end of each page and think as well. It's probably serving its purpose. Yeah. I love that. We should get Richard to put that on one of his next covers. Quote from Christy. It's like <laughs> a bowl of spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> that never ends. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? Was like... <laughs> we'll sort that out for you. Don't worry. We'll have one of <laughs> Now, I've got a theory that everybody that reads has got a book that's had a major influence in some way, a book that's changed their life. And that could be professionally, it could be personally. Do you have a book like that? And if you do, what is it? Okay, so I have been thinking about this, a book that's changed my life. And I just couldn't come up with anything because I think every book I've read, but I do have an answer though. So I think every book I've read has affected me in some way or changed me a little bit in some way I really genuinely believe that I really do I always feel like I I come out the other end of a book a slightly different person if I manage to there's loads of books I don't manage to finish though however having thought about this I've got to say that the book that changed my life is probably the same as the first book that I remember reading which we never actually talked about because we got distracted when we were talking yeah. about your childhood so what a lovely way to circle back around yes. thank you for my job for me <laughs> so what was the first book you remember reading so right I don't know the title but it was a book of fairy tales and my mum used to read it to us to me and my brother and she used to read it every night and we always wanted her to repeat the stories over and over and over again so there were the normal stories like Hansel and Gretel and there was Cinderella and Beauty and the Beast. And then there was another story about this boy who ate too many eggs and turned into an egg. Um, <laughs> I don't know where that came from. And I've been looking for it and I can't find it. But anyway, it was there. So it was just this kind of like a combination of fairy tales and other stories. I, it was a collection. I don't know where the book is. I don't know where it's gone. I don't know what it was called. Probably like fairy tales and other stories for seven-year-olds or something. I don't know what it was, but there was a bunch of stories in there. And a lot of them were fairy tales. My mum used to read. So we there was something special about, and I still believe this, that Children often want the same story repeated over and over because they often find something new in it every time or mm-hmm. something different in it or they're trying to resolve something in their mind and that repetition kind of helps them to get there. And so that book was really important to me and I think got me absolutely to love stories because I remember being so excited that my mum was going to read me these stories out of this book. And I loved it. I'd look at the book during the day and go, oh, we're going to get a story from there again. And it was stories <laughs> that I'd read, <laughs> that I already heard her reading. And then when I was old enough to read on my own, I then read it myself. So that's the first book I remember reading. And it's probably also the book that changed my life in the way that it made me realize how much stories meant to me and how excited I was to listen to stories and then how excited I was to read stories. That's a perfect answer. 
let's talk about your new book. Okay. As I said earlier on, so the new book, Songbirds, it's out in July this year. I have a copy of it in my hand because I'm lucky enough to have had a pre-publication copy, which Aww. I'm so excited about. <laughs> yeah. It's another dual time frame novel in the same way The Beekeeper was. Um, this time it's based in Cyprus. Mm-hmm. And obviously the, the question I was originally going to ask you was where did the idea of the book come from? But obviously that's a silly question because you obviously have family heritage in Cyprus. But where did the concept of what you wrote about in the book come from? Okay, so it's actually a good question. So first of all, there, there was a number of things. So an, a friend of mine sent me an article about domestic workers in Cyprus that had gone missing. So just to give you a bit of background information, most middle class families in Cyprus have hired domestic workers. They didn't have to be rich, just average middle class family. Most of them will have domestic workers. And the domestic workers often come from Sri Lanka, the Philippines, Nepal, Vietnam, and various other places as well. But those are the main ones. And Over the years, when I go to visit Cyprus, I realized that often the women work kind of ridiculously long hours. I started picking up on things like, what are the contracts like? And how come they're working so many hours? And, and, you know, there was this very fine line in my mind between what it meant to be hired as a domestic worker and what it meant to almost be treated like a slightly... I don't want to, I don't know if the word slave is too much, too over the top, but there was just sometimes I'd get this kind of really uneasy feeling like, this is going too far. These women are going above and beyond what they're hired to do. And there's no boundaries there. And it's like they have to do absolutely everything. And and so I, I remember at one point, I even, I downloaded the contract. I found it online. And don't forget, Cyprus is an EU country, and this does not only happen in Cyprus. And the contract, the word obey your employer was actually in the contract. And I couldn't oh believe it. And anyway, eventually, this friend of mine, she knew I was, you know, we'd had a conversation about it at some point because her family is also from Cyprus. And I remember coming back and saying to her, Anna, did you notice blah, 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 blah. And, you know, we had this sort of conversation about it. So eventually she sent me this article about these domestic workers that had gone missing. So five domestic workers and two children. Nobody would search for them because they were foreign. And I realized, I mean, I just wasn't surprised. I was like, well, of course, nobody searched for them. Mm -hmm. And that feeling, the fact that I said, of course, nobody searched for them because they were foreign really angered me and upset me. So I followed the story and it just got from bad to worse to horrific. And I won't say too much about it. I mean, people can research it. And so that was where the idea for the story came from. This idea that there were these five women and two children that went missing, their employers had reported them missing, other people, their family members had reported them missing, people had said, because I met the man who, so one of the men that I interviewed, this guy called Louis, who is the head of a human rights organisation in Cyprus, and he also has a cafe where a lot of domestic workers go on Sundays and kind of make food and drink tea and chat and whatever. So a lot of the sisters or brothers or employers or whoever were going to Louis and saying we've been to the police so and so has gone missing they're not looking for her and they they would say to him I know that she wouldn't run away because what the police were saying oh they've run away oh they've gone to the north of the island this is what these women do they don't care about anything blah 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 which sadly I wish that that had been the case that they had run away and sadly that's not the case that 
the reality of the situation was something very, very, very sad, which you'll see if you read to the end of Songbirds. And so I think after interviewing Louis and finding out a lot of things about what happened at the time, I just felt absolutely compelled to write about it. And the other thing was that at one point, my dad also had a, had hired a domestic worker called Nisha. I've actually named the character in my book after her just because I've mm-hmm. been so good friends with her. We were the, roughly the same age. She was a few years older than me. I mean, she's left now. She's now working for a family that have children. And we became such good friends. And I and like she had two daughters in Sri Lanka and she left Sri Lanka to come to Cyprus because she wanted to make sure that her daughters could go to university because that was her husband's wish and he had died in a farming accident and there was no way that she could support her daughters if she'd stayed in Sri Lanka this is what she said to me and you know we'd spend ages talking and you know she loved her husband he passed away and she didn't know what else to do so she came to Cyprus um, sending money back home but when I met her she hadn't seen her daughters for eight years wow yeah oh my goodness yeah so she was having a relationship with them over the phone and eventually with a tablet you know so it was my friendship with her and this article that my friend sent me that kind of it all came together and I thought I really really want to write about this yeah, and it translates, I mean, it's a terrible thing you're talking about here. And it's, again, another, it kind of reinforces what I said earlier on about the beekeeper as well. What you're doing with your stories is telling people about these awful things that are happening in a way that makes them very easy to digest. And I think that's really important for people to be able to learn about these things. Absolutely, yeah. And also for people to be able to see, like, hope in things as well. So it's very sad about the women that went missing. But what I also learned while I was researching was how women came together, you know, Mm -hmm. and how they developed strength and how they found their voices. And it was the same when I was doing the research for the beekeeper of Aleppo, because the more people I interviewed, and I realized the journeys they had, then the more I could understand their strength, and where hope came into it. So I researched things that are for me and for others, I suppose, really, really upsetting. And then while I'm doing the research, I learn things myself, where I think, Mm -hmm. wow, look at that courage. I mean, look at how brave this person was, or look at how, like, these women found their voices, or look at how, for example, when I was writing, when I was researching Beekeeper, how many people wanted to get to a particular country because a family member was there, Mm -hmm. and that was their driving force. And when I was researching songbirds, how many women were like, no, you know, I, I, this is me. I'm a person of worth and I want to be heard. And, you know, you kind of stand up straight and listen and go, wow, you know, these people are so courageous. And what if I had gone through that? Would I have had that courage? Mm. Yeah, the real strength of character. Yeah. And yeah. I, I was thinking, what I really liked about the book as well is I like the different perspectives because obviously you do it from the perspective of the woman that it employed. Petra, and then you also did it from the perspective of the man who was having a relationship yeah, Miss, yeah. with Nisha. Yeah. And that was really, really interesting because, again, it kind of reflected two different sides of society as it was in this particular instance and how the perception of what that woman's, I guess, role in society was. Yeah. Um, and I just I thought that was really clever and it really made the human element of her very strong. Because what I was trying, what I wanted to do with that was I wanted, I want the reader, hopefully, to be able to find Nisha at first through other people's narration. Mm -hmm. Because I felt when I was researching that that's what I had to do when it was like, 
hearing other people's stories from other people's mouths and eventually finding that person. I, it's hard for me to say without giving away too much. So that's mm -hmm. why I'm sort of hesitant. No spoilers. Yeah, no, no spoilers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we just need to encourage everyone to read it then. That's where my job comes into play. So I don't think it will be a difficult thing to do, though. Um, I know that for people like yourself who have done ridiculously well with the previous book, you probably feel under pressure yourself and you know, there's a certain amount of pressure from the publishing world as a whole in terms of making sure the next book stands up to the previous one. But I have to say, having read this, that I think it absolutely does. Oh, thanks so much. That means a lot. Really, it means a lot, yeah. <laughs> um, it's always nerve-wracking. Whenever a book is coming out and you put your heart into it, you know, you sit there and you write it and you think, how is this going to be received? So it's always such a nerve-wracking thing. And I guess for you, it's all been about, you know, it's yours and it's private and then suddenly it's out there for the world to yeah. see. So, And we're in that stage at the moment, aren't we? Because it's not published yet. I'm really yeah. pleased to be chatting to you before the publication. And so I guess right now you're just starting the process of starting to build up to that day. Yeah. It's still a couple of months away. And I'm presuming that you're, you're still teaching at the moment. The term hasn't finished yet. It's just finished, actually. I taught my last lesson on um, Wednesday, last Wednesday. Okay, so you've got some time now without that um, yeah. to probably focus on the book. So how are you planning on spending the next couple of months? Is it all around the songbirds or is, have you got other things you're working on as well? Yeah, so I'm going to do the normal publicity, interviews, that sort of thing, focus on songbirds as much as I can. But I've also started thinking about my next book as well. And so I've started reading and researching. Excellent. Ah, yeah. I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> now, I won't ask you too much about that because I know especially at this point it's... it's yeah, very, it's, so, um, it's so brand new in my head that I wouldn't even know where to begin talking about it. So <laughs> maybe if we chat again. <laughs> yeah, we'll chat in a year. Hopefully, hopefully next time we talk we'll be able to do it face to face. Oh, yeah, yeah. It'd be so lovely. Well, I feel like we've chatter we've kind of touched on a whole bunch of different things it's been so interesting talking to you I just I think what you did your research into and, and how you pulled it together in these books is just fascinating I feel like I talked to you about it for, for hours um, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast today I really appreciate you taking the time out and I wish you all the best for Zongbirds because it's absolutely well deserved and we will be selling it to everyone that comes into the shop Aww. Thank you so much. Your questions have been amazing. I've really enjoyed talking to you. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Most Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.